Hello! We're here because we, uh, love our planet. <laughs> Sign here on the dotted line, patriots, and I'll give you your discount cards. Just out of curiosity, we could use the cards to buy gum, then immediately quit the army, right? You know, playing you off for chumps. Correct. There's no obligation. <laughs> Unless, of course, war were declared. What's that? War were declared. everyone, welcome to the Tech Weasel Podcast for Friday, May 22nd, 2020. As always, I'm your host, Paul Husinga, and this week's episode is about a bit of World War II history that most people have never heard of, but it involves heroism, betrayal, injustice, and some undeniably badass Hawaiians. Now, it's got a lot of Hawaiian and Japanese names in it, so please forgive me if I mispronounce or struggle with them at times. I promise you I'm doing the best I can. Our story begins way back in 1864, when Elizabeth Sinclair purchased the tiny, westernmost island in the Hawaiian chain for $10,000 in gold from King Kamehameha V. Sinclair's own life story is a, you know, kind of a thing in itself. She was born in Scotland in 1800, and she married a captain in the Royal Navy in 1824. The couple had six children, three boys and three girls, and in the early 1840s, the family moved to New Zealand and started a ranch there. Now, in 1846, just three years later, her husband and her eldest son were lost at sea during a business trip, along with the family's entire savings. Eliza and her remaining children, and eventually grandchildren, rebuilt from that tragedy, but at age 63, she sold her land in New Zealand, and the clan set out for the Americas to find better opportunities. After first looking at Vancouver Island on Canada's west coast, but deciding that it would take too much work to clear forests for agriculture, and finding that the indigenous people weren't to her liking in terms of industriousness, Eliza resolved to keep moving. California was considered, but rejected, and she finally settled on the kingdom of Hawaii. Now, intent on raising a flock of merino sheep she had brought with her, she considered and rejected offers to buy land in Waikiki and uh, Pearl Harbor in favor of the island of Niihau. $10,000 sounds like a buttload of money for 1864, but in today's purchasing power, it's only equivalent to about $163,000. Now that seems like a bargain price for an entire Hawaiian island, but Niihau had some definite drawbacks. It's a little more than 70 square miles total, and as the geographically oldest island in the chain, it's a mere remnant of the peak of an ancient volcano. As the Pacific tectonic plate slides northwest ever so slowly, the hot spot in the Earth's crust that created the Hawaiian islands, and is still doing so today, stays stationary underneath it. So the island chain strung out to the northwest as old volcanoes went dormant and started to erode, and new ones formed to the southeast over the hot spot. Ni'ihau is in the rain shadow of Kauai, so unlike the other six islands in the chain, it has a distinct rainy and a distinct dry season, and it has historically experienced long periods of drought. Anyone who lives there has to rely on catching and storing rainwater because there's no permanent natural lakes or other reservoirs, and as a result, it's always been sparsely populated. Nevertheless, Eliza and her family made a reasonably successful business out of sheep ranching on the island, and over time the ownership of the land passed to her descendants in the Robinson family. So it was that on December 7, 1941, there were a total of 136 residents living on Niihau, all of them nominally working for Almer Robinson, 
who lived on Kauai and more or less ran Ni Hao with little to no interference or influence from the Hawaiian government. There was no plumbing, electricity, or paved roads on the island, and once a week like clockwork, Robinson made the round trip from Kauai by boat to deliver supplies and mail, transport livestock back and forth, and handle business. Besides battery-powered radios that received commercial broadcasts from Kauai but couldn't transmit, the only contact Ni'ihau had with the outside world was through these weekly visits. Out of the 136 people living on the island, 133 of them were native Hawaiians, speaking their own dialect in addition to some English, and generally living a pretty pastoral life. The other three residents, also living more or less the same way as everybody else and part of the close-knit community, all had Japanese ancestry. There was Ishimatsu Shintani, born in Japan and therefore Issei, or first-generation immigrant, who was married to a native Hawaiian living there on the island. The other two were Yoshido Harada and his wife Irene. She was also Issei, but Yoshio, born in Hawaii, was Nisei, the child of an immigrant. Everyone is familiar with the main events of the Imperial Japanese Navy's surprise attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor on the morning of December 7, 1941. While it was overwhelmingly successful for the IJN, they did take losses of aircraft in the process, and in their planning for the attack, they had allowed for that possibility. They'd instructed pilots of damaged aircraft that couldn't make it back to the carriers to try and land on Ni'ihau, which their somewhat flawed intelligence reports had said was uninhabited. There, they were supposed to wait to be picked up by submarines and returned to the fleet. So it came to pass that Airman First Class Shigenori Nishikaichi, who had flown his Mitsubishi A6M20 fighter from the deck of the carrier Hiryu as part of the second wave of the attack, crash-landed on Ni'ihau after his aircraft was damaged. As luck would have it, he came down in a field near one of the islanders, a native Hawaiian named Hawilia Kaleohano. I hope I got that right. Now, nobody on the island knew anything about the attack at this point, being more than 140 miles away from Pearl Harbor. But Kaleohano had listened to the news and read the papers in the weeks prior, and recognized a Japanese military plane when he saw one. Acting quickly, Kaleohano went to the plane, pocketed the pilot's documents in his pistol, and started extracting Nishikaichi from the wreck. And soon enough, more islanders arrived, and by the time Nishikaichi, who had had his bell rung pretty good in the crash, came back to his senses, he discovered, much to his dismay, that he was being transported back to the village by a throng of friendly Hawaiians, minus his gun and his papers. The pilot's wounds were mostly cuts and bruises, and being thoroughly Hawaiian, the islanders treated him with hospitality and courtesy, even laying out a big family meal for everyone. Nishikaichi's only language besides Japanese was a few words of English, so the islanders sent for Shintani to translate for them. They brought him up to speed on what had happened once he got there, but he was visibly not happy with the situation, and only spoke a few words in Japanese with the pilot before noping right on out of there without further explanation. Undeterred, the Hawaiians then sent somebody to go fetch the Haradas. Yoshio was far less reluctant and had a lengthy conversation with uh, Nishikaichi, in which the pilot broke the news about the attack and asked for help getting his documents and sidearm back. Yoshio thought it probably wasn't a great idea to translate the whole sneak attack part of their talk, but he did ask Kaleohano to return what he'd taken from the plane. This request was politely but firmly refused. At this point, Yoshio made a fateful decision. He and his wife would do what they could to help Nishikaichi recover his secret documents and escape. Before any plans could be made, though, that night the islanders learned of the attack via radio, and they immediately had another sit-down with the pilot, with Yoshio translating once again. This time he was more forthcoming with news of the attack, since it was no longer a secret. 
Because Robinson was due to make his weekly visit the next day on Monday, the Islanders decided that they would turn Nishikaichi over to him so that he could be handed off to the authorities on Kauai. As it turned out, all of Hawaii went on an immediate lockdown, and Robinson couldn't make his regular trip. Now, with no way to communicate with the outside world other than Morse code via mirrors during the day and lanterns at night, and not knowing that travel was banned, the island's residents became more and more concerned as days passed with no boat arriving. In the meantime, the Haradas managed to convince the other islanders to let the pilot stay with them, but in order to prevent a possible escape, four guards, all unarmed, were posted at their home. As you might imagine, this was a bad idea, because Yoshio and the pilot had as much time as they wanted to converse and plan in secret, since none of the others understood Japanese besides Mrs. Harada. At some point, Shintani, the man who had initially refused to talk to the pilot, got roped into the conspiracy with the Haradas to free him. By Friday the 12th, with Robinson still a no-show, they set their plan in motion. Late in the afternoon, Shintani went to Kaliohano's house and offered him $200, an enormous amount of money on Niihau, in exchange for the pilot's documents. Kaliohano still wasn't having it, and Shintani left without them, but not before making vague but dire pronouncements about it being a matter of life and death. Meanwhile, security had gotten a little lax at the Haradas, and only one guard was on duty. Seizing the opportunity, Yoshio and the pilot attacked and overpowered him, then locked him up in a shed, managing to arm themselves with a shotgun and Nishikaichi's pistol in the process. Taking a teenage captive along the way, they all headed to Kaliohano's house, but couldn't locate him. Through a quirk of fate, he had gone to see a man about a horse right after Shintani left, and he hid in the outhouse where he watched them search for but not find the missing papers. The conspirators eventually decided to abandon their fruitless search and go see if there was anything to salvage from the nearby Zero, and as soon as they did, Kaliohano booked it into the jungle with them in hot pursuit. He managed to elude them, and he made his way to the village to warn them that the pilot had escaped with the help of the Haradas. After realizing Kaliohano had gotten away from them, the pilot and the Haradas, along with their captive, went back to the plane, where Nishikaichi attempted to use the radio to contact friendly forces. Even if the radio hadn't been rendered inoperable in the crash, by this time the Japanese fleet was halfway back to base and far out of range, and all the submarines had been recalled, presuming that by this time, any downed pilots would be either dead or prisoners of war. One thing that did still work, however, were the plane's two rifle-caliber machine guns mounted in the nose, and with some effort, one of them and a belt of ammunition was salvaged, before the group set fire to the wreck to make sure nothing useful was left to capture. As twilight fell, Kaliohano reached the village, and he told of the Harada's treachery. It wasn't until the guard, who had escaped from the shed and also made his way to the village, confirmed the story that people began to believe that their neighbors, who they'd known forever, had betrayed them. The islanders, fearing what might come next, abandoned the village to hide out in the countryside, where Kale while Kaliohano, being a badass, slid a canoe into the water and, with five others on board, began to paddle the 17 miles of open water between Niihau and Kauai to get help. Meanwhile, back at the crash site, the pilot was becoming more and more desperate to get control of the situation and recover or destroy the code books, maps, and other papers that had been captured. The group went back to Kaliohano's house, set it on fire in the middle of the night in case the documents were hidden there, and then headed toward the village in search of him. In the process, they captured another Hawaiian named Kalima, then released him when he agreed to search for Kaliohano in exchange for the safety of the other captive and the villagers. Instead, Kalima found his friend Ben Kanahele, and the two of them attempted to sneak back and steal the machine gun from Nishikaichi and the Haradas. The attempt was unsuccessful, and after the sun rose on Saturday the 13th, 
the conspirators went to Kanahele's house and captured, his, captured Ben and his wife, Ella. This time, they ordered Ben to look for Kaleohano, keeping Ella as a hostage. Playing for time, Ben left even though he knew Kaleohano and his group were already on their way to Kauai, but he returned shortly afterward, concerned for his wife's safety. At this point, Nishikaichi was fed up, and through Yoshio Harada, told Ben that he would kill him, his wife, and everyone else he could find until Kaleohano and the missing papers were turned over. Ben and Ella, equally over it at this point, waited until the pilot and Harada were momentarily distracted, and then they attacked them. Ben went after Harada, who had just been handed the shotgun, while Ella, also a badass, pinned the pilot's arm down when he tried to pull his pistol from his boot. Harada broke free from Ben and pulled Ella off of Nishikaichi, who then used his pistol to shoot Ben three times, twice in the torso and once in the leg. This was a mistake, as it merely enraged Ben Kanahele. Grabbing the pilot with both hands, Ben lifted him off his feet and slammed him into a rock wall. Now Ella, not wanting Ben to have to do all the work, grabbed a big rock and began smashing it into the day's pilot's head, while her husband pulled out his hunting knife and finished the job by cutting Nishikaichi's throat. Meanwhile, Yoshio Harada, who had set events in motion days before that he couldn't have possibly imagined at the time, decided that he didn't really want to find out what the two furious Hawaiians would do to him, and he turned the shotgun on himself. With the two main threats neutralized, Ella went for help, and the next afternoon, one week after the Pearl Harbor attack, a boat finally arrived with Robinson, military authorities, and the six islanders who had sailed to Kauai for help. Ben was transported to Waimea Hospital on Kauai, where he was treated and recovered from his gunshot wounds. Irene Harada and Shintani were both taken into custody. While never charged with a crime and maintaining her innocence throughout, Harada spent 31 months in jail. She was eventually returned to live on Kauai after the war. Shintani went sent to an internment camp, but returned to his wife on Niihau after the war and became a U.S. citizen in 1960. Ben Kanahele was honored with the Medal for Merit, which is the highest civilian honor the U.S. can bestow, and a Purple Heart in a military ceremony on Honolulu the same day that Emperor Hirohito formally announced the surrender of Japan on August 15, 1945. Sadly, Ella was never recognized for her role, and she passed away in 1974 at the age of 67. While there's debate on how much influence the Niihau incident played in the treatment of Japanese Americans on the West Coast during the war, it definitely provided justification for those who sought and were granted the power to round up U.S. citizens with the wrong ancestry and put them in internment camps like Manzanar. The events weren't widely known during the war among the general public, but official military reports at the time remarked on how surprising it was that the Japanese residents of Niihau had almost immediately taken the side of the pilot at the expense of the people they'd been living among for years. Ironically, Nisei and Issei, living in Hawaii during the war, were never subjected to internment. With the islands under martial law and Japanese Americans providing the majority of the manpower in critical professions like construction, public transportation, and agriculture, they faced distrust but maintained most of their freedom. In any case, one in three of the island's residents had Japanese heritage, making mass incarceration more or less impossible. So that's the story of Niihau. I hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll join me again next week for another Tech Weasel broadcast. Until then, take care of yourself, and maybe let somebody else know about how awesome and interesting these things are. See you next time.
I need you to stay right there.